Marco Gigi, I'm really, really excited to um, have you on this podcast and I'm really just would love for you to share your story. Um, I'm just going to pass it over to you and say, welcome Gigi, um, just introduce yourself. And as you share your story, I'll probably just jump in and ask questions where I can sit here and listen to you all day. So just go with it and then we'll go from there. Okay, well, hello, everybody. Um, I'm Gigi and I'm strictly speaking a, a health coach and, and pain coach. But I we were saying this before we started recording. I think that it's very difficult to describe what I do in terms of just being a health coach and a pain coach, I much prefer to say that I'm a professional support system. Um, my career in all of this started in the fact that I had, because I had uh, chronic symptoms that lasted for over 10 years, which ultimately left me bed bound. Um, so this was something that was absolutely transformed my life and changed the trajectory of my life and what I felt that I was capable of doing. Um, but my my story actually started when I was really young, when I was around 12-ish, um, when I was initially diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos. And this diagnosis didn't actually come at the time because I had um, any physical complaints, if you will. It was actually the doctor saw me and they said she looked a little bit funny. So we're not going to, you know, we're not going to just let her let her go. I was very tall and I was very skinny for my age and I had very long fingers and I was very hypermobile. And so they really wanted to make sure that I didn't have a more serious connective tissue disorder like Marfan's or, you know, something else that has more um heart pain for the listeners what Ellis Danlos is so that just those who don't know so Ellis Danlos is a um a genetic connective tissue disorder um there are different types of Ellis Danlos so I was diagnosed with hypermobility type Ellis Danlos mm -hmm. um hypermobility type Ellis Danlos does not have yet a specific um we haven't identified specific genes associated with it it's more based off process of elimination and your appearance um and so that's how I was diagnosed but there are other forms of Ehlers-Danlos like vascular Ehlers-Danlos mm -hmm. um yeah. which has more severe complications and so you need to be more regularly monitored but hypermobility Ehlers-Danlos is for me it was kind of a dustbin diagnosis of okay we've made sure that you don't have Marfan's um, which is another connective tissue um, disorder, which they have identified specific genes associated with it. And mm -hmm. that one needs to be um, monitored significantly more regularly because of the heart related complications that you can have. So I was given Ehlers-Danlos type three, which to be honest at the time, I didn't really care about because I, I wasn't actually struggling with any major problems. This was just a diagnosis that was put on me. What made you go in in the first place? I, I it was just a, It was just a normal GP Okay, check out. just a checkup and then they sort of said well she is looking a little bit st strange <laughs> and, um and so there was this I think my mum also just thought she she really is growing quite tall and she doesn't put on weight very easily and so I think that there was a sort of parental decision to just have me checked out for something like that mm -hmm. um and so that's how I walked away with this diagnosis, but it really didn't mean a lot. But very shortly after, I actually had uh, quite a severe accident where I severed my Achilles tendon and it was a it was a bit of a freak accident. And that's around nine months after that. That's where my symptoms first started appearing. So that oh. was an incredibly stressful time for me. I was told there's a possibility that you've hit your nerve bundle. I mean, words like amputation were thrown around, words like death were thrown around. And at the time, I really didn't think that anything had gone wrong or anything that had happened. I was actually laughing on my way to the hospital and suddenly I was wheeled in for emergency surgery telling me that this was way more serious than I thought. And I think that that was a huge shock to my nervous system because I really wasn't expecting it at all. It all happened so quickly. Um, so my before, before you're a teenager, right? So still. Yeah. In yes. yeah. Wow. yeah. So then I uh, had a very long drawn out recovery because of the nature of the accident. It took way longer than normally in a ruptured Achilles tendon heels. And so I was in and out of casts. My cast was being changed every several weeks. And I was just going in and out of the hospital. And at the time, it was really isolating from my friends at school because I wasn't allowed to go. I was on crutches and my school put in 
rules rules in place which meant that I couldn't walk with my friends at the same time because I was considered a safety hazard with my with my crutches and so really for for many many months I was completely isolated from my friends which obviously had a profound social social um had profound social implications on me as well so this was a really challenging period of my life and about nine months after that I started developing my first major, if you could put quote unquote, Ehlers-Danlos symptoms, which are not really Ehlers-Danlos symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, And this started in the form of POTS. So every time I would sit up in bed, my heart rate would go through the roof. For anybody who doesn't know what POTS is, it stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which basically just means when you change your posture, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes down, although sometimes your blood pressure can go up. And that's really, it's just a descriptive term of what was happening to me. It doesn't really give you any more information than that. Um, But every time I would sit up in bed, my heart rate would go through the roof. My blood pressure would drop. I would feel incredibly dizzy and forget trying to stand up because then I would just start to feel like I was about to pass out or sometimes. And I've seen clients with POTS as well. It's incredibly debilitating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that was, again, still whilst you're at school, before your teens, you, you know, you already you've had some serious events in your life, just, you know, one after the other. And it just seems and then suddenly you've got POTS, which was just came on or was that also triggered by anything? No injuries or falls or? No, I think it was in hindsight, I think it was a delayed response to my accident. So I wasn't one of those people that had these big nervous system reactions directly after incidents. They sort of built up several months after, um, which I think made it difficult in a way to figure out what was going on because it wasn't this clear cut the next day this happened to me and I could say oh well 100% this is caused by this um so yeah this was POTS really started when I was um when I was a teenager um and then I tried to live life the best that I could and but it, it was really really debilitating there were some days when it came to exam revision I would be rushed into hospital because you have these episodes that feel like you're dying Ooh. and you know Ooh. my my blood pressure would drop my heart rate would go through the roof then it would be above 200 and then I would start being unable to regulate my temperature so I'd be violently shaking and all these heated blankets would be put on me and I would never be able to be warmed up enough Um, and then I started developing neuropathy which was another fun little addition to all of this so I would have really strange sensations of water being poured on my feet. I would have tingliness or numbness in my limbs. I had a really strange sensation of an egg cracking on my head. And then I would feel what felt like yolk traveling down my head. And then when it would reach just above my eyes, I would start to feel like I was about to pass out, which was very strange in and of itself. When I went to the neurologist, they, saw, they looked at me like I was crazy um and then I had fatigue so it was basically one set of symptoms after another I then got to that there was one specific memory that I that always sticks out when I was developing the fatigue where my mum bless her was trying to make me feel better and she decided to try and take me out for lunch and I was so weak I could barely walk across the restaurant floor and by the time I actually sat down and the food arrived I was so weak I couldn't feed myself properly and that was the moment where it's not a normal type of I'm just tired it was the only way I can describe it is it really just feels like your cells are not producing energy in the way that they should be and it was a bit like you know kind of shut down you know I don't know whether that's what but you know with POTS they usually say it's you know I mean from a nutritional perspective a nutritional medicine perspective we look at it as a HPA axis dysfunction a hypothalamus pituitary axis dysfunction and then that can lead on to after that kind of fight or flight. And then there's the freeze where your body starts to sort of shut down. But can I just ask you, Gigi, how were you feeling all this time? What were you emotionally feeling? You know, you said you were isolated, you were on crutches at school, though, you know, you had to have not walk with your friends. What was going on for you, you know, in your mind, in your head? It was a really difficult time because I think initially people get that sense of relief when they get a diagnosis because it's an explanation of oh thank goodness I understand what's going on but in my case that never really happened because every time I received a diagnosis it would then be accompanied with 
this is just because of your Alice Danlos. This is just something that you're going to have to learn how to live with. This is something that we don't really understand very well. And I'm sorry, you've just pulled the short straw. And I had really lovely, lovely doctors, but there was nothing that they could do. It was just, we don't really understand what's going on. And I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. So from an emotional perspective, that is so much to take on because you're effectively being told that this is something that is lifelong and your symptoms are debilitating. So there was no sense of relief in my diagnoses. It just added to my overwhelm. Mm. And I became, there was one time that I was taken into hospital and I was admitted and it was just before my AS exams and the doctor about came to me. About 18, right? Is that about 18, 17? This one when I was uh, 17. This would have been when yeah. I was 17. And uh, people who are listening who may yes. not know AS. Yeah. Yes, exactly. When I was around 17, 16, 17. Yeah. And, um, the the doctor said to me he said Gigi this is you're going to have to really consider whether or not you take your exams this just might not be on the cards for you to you know graduate and do all of these things that you really want to do now yeah. for me I was very academically ambitious it's something that I derived a lot of my self-worth in it was something that I was proud of and so basically being told the one thing that you think you're good at you're not sure you're going to actually be able to do it or pursue it in any way oh. that was devastating so I was trying to deal with the fact that I for a, a long period of time hadn't been able to socialize with my friends properly I was then being told that the only thing I'd been able to do okay in my work I wasn't actually capable of doing yeah. so I was just increasingly thinking well what's left for me what's yeah. my role in, in the world yeah and in that time what did you know support group who was around you know your family your members you did they understand what was going on were they you know yeah, I think my my greatest support system throughout this, the entirety of my journey was 100% my mum. She took me to every single doctor's appointment. She was always there for me to cry with. I mean, I cried a lot. It was incredibly difficult. She was always searching to see how she could help me. But then there were other there were other people in my life who really didn't understand. And this is no problem. This is no fault of their own, because from their perspective, here I was as a healthy-ish looking person who was having completely normal blood tests. Yes. All the test results were coming back totally fine. I looked okay in normal range. And then I was saying, I feel so debilitated that I can't do anything. There yeah. comes a point where you just, as a, as a family member or as a friend, it's very, very difficult to yeah. understand if what is going on. And I think a lot of people probably made the assumption that I was just being a bit dramatic or it was something in you know something quote unquote in my in my head but oh. from my perspective this just made it so much more painful because I just couldn't demonstrate enough how real what I was feeling was and there was no way of proving it because you're always within a normal range yeah. so I think that this was, I my my support was very mixed but my mum really took the the baton and she was the one who carried me through throughout all of this so I did absolutely have the greatest support system in the form of her yeah <laughs> um yeah it was it was very very challenging but the, the the problem was is that my symptoms just kept coming so I kind of I felt like we were just being continuously barraged my poor mom every time we would sort of get to grips with the idea of this being my life with one thing it was then another thing that happened so she was living a nightmare as well mm. and um, there was a time that she I mean by this stage I'd been diagnosed with IBS um, fatigue uh, fibromyalgia uh, I mean neuropathy mm -hmm. and I, I had all the tests at the time the doctors were actually concerned that I was developing MS um, so I had had all the brain scans, all the blood tests, all CT scans, x-rays. I had been through the absolute ringer with autoimmune conditions, MS. I mean, all, all of these different things um, yeah. to try and make sure that nothing medically had been missed and, and nothing came up. And then my mum herself had her own health emergency. So this was devastating for me because I had always been the one who had required her assistance and it was always me having the medical problems yeah. and then suddenly when it was her uh, emotionally I was not equipped to cope at all it yeah. really really hit me very very hard and luckily she was okay but mm -hmm. several months after that I then developed 
my next symptom, which was interstitial cystitis or my next diagnosis. Okay. And this that was, was diag- after your mum had fallen ill or had yes. an right. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which in hindsight all makes sense now, yeah. <laughs> but um, it was it was really awful. It started with what felt like a slow stream when I went to the bathroom and I kind of just thought, oh, this is a little bit strange, a little bit unusual. And then I thought, I'm just going to monitor it. But then the slow stream turned into urgency. So I would feel once I'd gone to the bathroom, I would need to immediately go again. And so I thought what any normal person would think. And I thought, oh, well, 100% I've developed a UTI. So I took a whole bunch of d and I took, I was chugging cranberry juice like it was going out as of fashion. You do, as you do. Yeah. And I was trying my best. And then, but my symptoms weren't going away. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be medically responsible and I'm going to go to the doctor and I'm going to ask for some antibiotics because it was getting really, really uncomfortable. Well, now, my I, doctor. You just say that's really interesting, you know, with interstitial cystitis, for those who are also listening, I mean, from my experience from clinical practice, is that um, usually there is no, usually, there is no infection, but there's incredible pain. It's, you know, the women have all the symptoms of like a UTI, bladder issues, but generally when they do a test, they don't usually find anything. So I'm just, just for the listeners, um, that that's what I've experienced from clients, but please carry on. I was just, just thought I'd add that in just in case. Yeah, absolutely. So that was my experience. So I went in and I and my doctor being a good doctor said, no, we don't give antibiotics unless you've had a culture done, unless you've tested positive um, for infection. So I took the culture and I was 100 percent expecting that culture to come back positive. So I went home and in the 48 hours that I was waiting, my symptoms exponentially exploded. It was it, it was absolute agony 15 out of 10 agony Mm. and I was I I wasn't leaving the bathroom at Mm. all so it was just it was just a really awful experience I then managed to get back to the doctor being incredibly grateful for the fact that I was about to be given antibiotics only to be told by my lovely doctor who was who was so wonderfully supportive to me but she said Gigi it's great news you don't have an infection so you don't need the antibiotics do you know let just put just just a second there you know You've got to this point, you've been diagnosed with at least, what, 10 chronic conditions by now? And then, you know, interstitial schistitis from, you know, from what I've heard, not not experienced, but from clients, it, it's, it's horrendous, the pain. And then to be, you know, absolutely, before, before I discovered what interstitial cystitis was, I would have thought, right, there's no way, redo your test, you know, redo the test, you've got to have an infection because the pain, it's, it's not made up, it's real. And you're now going back to the doctors and they're saying, oh, great news. You don't have an infection, but yet you're you've got more pain. Right. Exactly. So I did exactly what your intuition would have told you to do. And I asked for another culture because I said, you have absolutely 100 percent got this wrong. There's no way that I don't have an infection. I think I retested for an infection in that period alone about five times in the space of two weeks so I was going in waiting for a culture result going in waiting for a culture result I just couldn't take no for an answer and then there came a point where I said okay clearly your culture testing is not good enough so I'm going to go to the urologist and I'm going to then have my urine tested there so I had a whole bunch of urological testing ask you sound like you were determined you sound yes. like a determined person. Like you didn't think, oh my God, that's the end of the world and just collapse at home and, and kind of just give in. You know, by this time you're just thinking, okay, where do you go with that? Your doctors. And then you think, okay, now I'm going to go and see a urologist. It, to me, I hear like a fighter, you know, fighting spirit there. Is that? 100%. And the, the thing is not only am I in life generally a naturally perfectionistic driven person, but yeah. the stakes were so high in this situation that I couldn't give up because the symptoms were so severe I I couldn't have coped like that it was and you're looking for there's got to be an answer right there has to be something I I couldn't understand how my symptoms had started over the course of a week and how I had gone from you know occasionally everyone had had a UTI I had UTI in childhood um 
but how I'd gone from a healthy bladder, I never really thought about my urological processes before. And now I was in debilitating, life-changing pain that I couldn't cope with. And I was being told that there was no obvious cause for it. So even when I went to the urologist and I had all those tests done, everything came back as clear as it should have come back. And at then at that time, I then went back to my original doctor and she said, she's, we've, we've done everything at this point. This is, we're going to have to give you the diagnosis of interstitial cystitis. And she then said, I mean, her being as lovely as she was, she said, I just want to let you know that it won't always be this bad, but this is something that is a chronic condition. Mm -hmm. And again, being told you have another chronic condition was unbelievably triggering for me. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't understand it. And with this one, I think there was some part of my brain that just put its foot down. I couldn't accept it. I could not accept how suddenly I had got another chronic condition. And I remember sobbing to my mum saying, I I don't understand how I'm so unlucky. How is it that I have so many incurable conditions? What are what are the chances of that being the case? Now the chances are actually nil statistically speaking and that was that was the situation but I just didn't know it at the time so I went down my interstitial cystitis rabbit hole by this point I was you know interested in careers in in research and that was what I was doing and so I just went on to Google Scholar and I was researching and researching and researching about interstitial cystitis and checking the most recent papers and then researching again yeah and when you look on those papers it is absolutely horrifying horrifying the only things that you read are we don't know what causes it. The treatment options are no better than placebo. And there have even been cases of people removing their bladder and their symptoms haven't gone away. Well, that is horrible. That is horrifying when you read that and you're in debilitating pain, knowing that you just can't continue with it being at this level. So I was just going down this research rabbit hole, but luckily for me, I had my mum who has always been significantly more open-minded than me, significantly more holistically minded. And she said to me one evening, she said, look, she's, we're just going to have to hope that something comes to us and we're just going to try and continue until that point. Mm. And she went up to bed that night and she listens to podcasts as she goes to sleep. And she found uh, a podcast called The Cure for Chronic Pain and it was really about how chronic conditions can be caused by nervous system dysregulation and talking all about the mind-body connection, which is something that we had never, well, I had never really considered before. And she spent the entire night listening to almost every single testimonial at the time that existed about people who were just as similarly similarly severe as me, people who had the same conditions that I'd been diagnosed with, and people who personality-wise sounded incredibly similar to me, and how they had all made these incredible, wonderful recoveries now my mum was ecstatic I don't think she slept that night so she came running down the next morning I know she was like I found it she said geez I really think I know what's going on with you I think that it's I think it's the mind-body connection yeah I was disgusted I was absolutely disgusted by her response because from my experience I've I didn't really believe that the mind-body connection existed. So all I interpreted her saying was, I've thought about it overnight and I'm coming down to tell you that this is all in your head. That's how I interpreted it. Okay. I mean, honestly, I can understand that as well, especially because you're in so much pain. And I think maybe it was the interpretation, but to say, yeah, to, to actually think that somebody's saying it's all in your head, that just, and especially the person that is your support coming from right. a person that is actually your support and he's there and he's doing everything as much as they can and trying to understand it. And suddenly they're coming down and saying, okay, I think it's all in your mind. I know. It, I think that is what made it even more painful is the fact that she she was my greatest support and I felt like I was being betrayed Ooh. because suddenly it was somebody, I interpreted it as somebody who wasn't taking me seriously anymore. so we had one of the biggest rows that we've had (laughs) I said you know I don't want to talk about this anymore and I'd also come across another hypothesis at the time that suggested that interstitial cystitis was as the result of a chronic infection and I felt that that 
my symptoms were so severe, I really felt that that took my symptom experience more seriously than somebody telling me that my symptoms were in my head. And, you know, Gigi, just there, that's really interesting because you you read something that said that it could be due to an infection. Mm-hmm. And yet your mum was saying something else because she'd heard these podcasts and she's heard all these recovery stories. But yet, you know, that I suppose that bias towards it has to be something. There's got to be an infection that made you kind of lean towards that way. Although there's a lot of research saying interstitial cystitis, actually, there there is no infection. Right, exactly. I was desperate. I mean, kind of the di- interstitial cystitis as a diagnosis is only meant to be given when you have proven that there's no infection. So it really doesn't make sense. And this was a very controversial hypo- um, you know, theory that many urologists rejected, but I didn't care at this point because I just thought I am desperate and somebody, finally, somebody is telling me that I'm not making it up. So I decided, I said, look, we're going to park this mind body thing because this is, um, there's no way that I'm ready for that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to beg my doctor for some antibiotics. And how, and at that time, Gigi, how old are you now? Whereabouts are you in your, are you at It's so hard. I, I can't, I honestly can't. You're at home, you're not at university. You haven't gone yet to go and study or. I, I think it was just when I was at university but around that time it's really hard to pinpoint exactly when it was because it was all building around around the same time again still shows your your spirit you know you still you've got you're living with all these chronic conditions and your spirit to still carry on and, and pursue your studies and and you know keep going yeah exactly actually and in hindsight now this was past my undergrad so I had finished my undergrad by this point um yeah so I had I had gone managed to go through undergrad with just my pot symptoms and had graduated from uni and had done all of that and now I was in uh, a master's program okay yeah so it was around that time um so I I went to beg my doctor for the antibiotics and luckily because she is a wonderful doctor she she was compassionate she said you know what she's we don't really have anything to lose so let's give it a go and so she gave me a course of antibiotics and I took the first dose and within two three hours my symptoms went from a 15 out of 10 debilitating I couldn't even speak pain to around a two in about two to three hours now by this point I I did biology at university I understood how these things work antibiotics do not not work that quickly they take about 24 hours for you to notice a significant change and my symptoms had just plummeted in the you know the space of several hours but I really didn't mind because my symptoms had plummeted and I had been in severe discomfort for such a long period of time. I was I was in ecstasy. It was just the most incredible experience. That, and even then, they hadn't entirely gone away. They were around a three out of ten. But this was like getting my life back. I remember thinking to myself, I could live like this. This this I could live with. And um, so I decided to carry on taking them. But on day four, what happened is my symptoms came back, even though I was taking them. Now, this really, from a scientific perspective, didn't make any sense at all. You know, I I think you would expect your symptoms to completely clear up as the infection clears up and then you get better. And then, yeah. Right. Exactly. I I, at the beginning, I clearly had the world's most sensitive infection that it was having the fastest reaction known to man. But now (laughs) I had a resistant infection that wasn't responding to treatment. It just didn't make any sense at all. So you know coming from the scientific any sort of i suppose scientific sense right it in that respect yeah yeah it made no scientific sense so coming from the science background that i did i you have to be you have to go with the evidence that's the most important thing even if you have a theory if the evidence is suggesting that that's not the case you have to go with what the evidence is saying to you it's not about just proving your own personal theory so i had to consider something else And the only other thing I had, and I was furious that it was the only other option I had, but the only other option I had was to consider this mind body work. So yeah, back to them. 
Yeah, back to mum. Mum's always right. Um, so I I decided to give the podcast a listen and I listened to several people's testimonials and it began to change everything for me. Because I think when you really hear other people's stories, you you understand that your story is not the most severe in the world, as in there are other stories that are just as severe as what you have been experiencing. There were stories of people who had gone on disability, who you know felt that they couldn't live life anymore. And this was exactly what was happening to me. I, I couldn't cope and these people similarly couldn't cope. Now they weren't describing it as, oh, I had this slight inkling of it being in my, you know, being in my head or being in my brain. No, they were saying, I felt it in my bladder. There was absolutely no part of me that felt that this was something that was due to the mind-body connection or yes. similarly with POTS I was passing out so I didn't think that this was due to the mind-body connection I thought that this is something physical and yes. I had been told by my cardiologist that I had the lowest blood pressure of any conscious person that they'd ever measured this was not something that I was quote-unquote making up this was something that was real so I really needed to know that this could result in real observable changes which yeah. it can yeah and also, Gigi, I suppose, you know, listening to those stories, you you know, knowing that there are other people, you're not alone. Yeah. You know, that must have been in itself some kind of, you know, a process of healing. And it's like, oh, my gosh, there's other people who understand. Absolutely. And I think when I, I all I could do at this point was do a deep dive because that's all I knew how to do. And there was I discovered the work of Professor Howard Schubner, yeah. who completely transformed my life mm. and he wrote a book called how to unlearn your pain and I bought this book and I read it and within the first chapter he listed every single diagnosis that I had ever been given yeah. and the moral of the book or the moral of the story was here is all the science of why you're experiencing your symptoms mm -hmm. and you are going to be okay you are 100% going to be okay when I think back to reading that book, that book became my lifeline. Yeah. It, was, it was the most incredible gift that anybody could have given me. Yeah. And it, it really, it completely changed my life. It changed the trajectory of my life. And it's so, and I think he makes it so accessible as well. You know, it's, you're not reading a book that's complicated and full of jargon. It really, it's written for the average person. Yeah, you know, just, it really is. Yeah. It's, it's, a wonderful accessible almost information leaflet huge information leaflet on the current understanding of chronic symptoms yeah. and ways to shift your perspective and therefore shift your symptom experience yeah. so i began to commit to this now mm -hmm. in order for me to commit there were several things that i had to learn in order to know that i was going on the right path sure. the first one was that my symptoms were real now, yes. there's so many different studies that have happened now that demonstrate that this form of that these forms of non-structural symptoms are completely real. They're produced by the same region of your brain as structural pain. There have been a number of different studies demonstrating this. There have also been studies that have seen the shift from acute symptoms to chronic symptoms and, uh, and image that using functional MRI machines over time and have demonstrated that it moves to emotional related circuitry in the brain. There are incredible papers demonstrating this so that was really reassuring for me where I could say okay this is not a situation of the symptoms being in my head they're in my brain they're absolutely real and they are just as real as if I had broken my ankle it's processed in the same region of the brain as if I was structurally damaged so the so the messages are coming from the brain so you're saying it's, it's not sort of a made-up thing but there's there's definitely physiology behind it it's the messages from the brain and the functional MRI scans are showing that this happens and it's different areas of the brain light up on the on these particular people experiencing these chronic conditions. Is that correct? Right. Absolutely. The symptoms are 100 percent real and they are processed in the same region of the brain as if you had incurred structural damage. So yeah. this was huge. That means you can't you can't tell the difference between non-structural symptoms and structural symptoms. They feel the exact same to the person experiencing them in the same way that if you break your ankle, you don't feel the pain in your head, you feel mm -hmm. the pain in your ankle. It's mm -hmm. the same with my bladder symptoms. I wasn't feeling them in my brain, but it was my brain that was producing them. It was my brain that was sending the messages down my, down my nerves and I was feeling them in my bladder. So mm -hmm. my nerves were activated. So it was completely real. 
the second um, thing, sorry, sorry go ahead. can i just i'm just thinking of um just just to just to bring that home again so the pain it can be, it's very similar to whether it's structural or not structural yes and this because it's so real it's not you know it's not less intense more it's it's as real as a structural pain but it's not structural because it's created by the brain for some reason which i'm sure you'll go on and share but i just wanted to make that clear for for listeners that it's there's no difference whether it's structural or non-structural in the sense of the way you experience the pain absolutely because they're both structural and non-structural symptoms are produced by the brain yes. if you break your ankle it is your brain switching on the pain Yes. Now, with the case of non-structural symptoms, it is still your brain activating the pain, but it's mm -hmm. just not happening because there's structural damage. It's happening for another reason. And this yeah. other reason is the fact that our brain or humans evolved to be a social species. And part of being a social species meant that there was, uh, you know, as we became less solitary, there became a real benefit in terms of survival for working together as a group. Now, if you were likely to become isolated, that was something that was from a survival perspective, a big problem. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a situation where you're getting constantly devalued by somebody or somebody is always demeaning you mm -hmm. or rejecting you or somebody is being physically aggressive towards you or being mm -hmm. physically threatening, all of these things make it much more likely for you to become isolated because if you're getting rejected you're gonna you could get left out of the social group if you're getting physically attacked that increases your chances of infection and therefore you know and, and therefore death so there became this huge benefit when we evolved to be a social species to have a different type of warning signal it's mm -hmm. not just enough to only experience pain if we're structurally damaged that's not the only time that our survival could be potentially impacted so this form of pain is there for a reason it's not a mistake it's just a completely different type of warning signal mm -hmm. and that's pretty incredible because I think it's very easy for people to say okay fine these symptoms are in my brain but now my brain is making this huge mistake and how do I fix my brain and it's and not I, a mistake it's not a it, mistake it's not a mistake at all and when I looked back on my experience with my symptoms yes. I could then actually realize just how much physical stress I was under you know whether it was my mum's health emergency whether it was the fact that I was revising for my exams and I had all of this pressure to do well or you know whether I had after my accident my sense of danger had been completely skewed it was an enormous shock to my nervous system and yes. in that time I I had been told you were really lucky to survive so in that moment I had sort of understood my unconscious brain had processed that as you don't know when you're in danger or not you don't know when you could potentially die or not because you thought that you were going to be okay and now somebody is telling you that you nearly weren't okay yeah. so all of these different events suddenly it made sense as to why my brain had learned over time to view life as less and less and less safe and, and so more, what happened I suppose, and more and more dangerous yeah, exactly. More and more dangerous. So what happened is I just kept getting more and more danger alarm signals. Yeah. Now, all of my symptoms, whether they were POTS or neuropathy or anxiety mm. or IBS or all of these interstitial cystitis being the big, big finale firework display of them all, you know, yeah. all these danger alarm signals were doing the same thing. They were getting me to slow down. Yeah. They were getting me to try and minimize my overwhelm. Because if I was only able to live within the remit of my home, if I was only able to stay at home, yes. home is the most familiar environment for my brain. It has to do the least amount of processing. Yes. So this was my brain's way of trying to protect me, trying to say, you have too many things going on. We can't process another thing. We can't process a social interaction with a friend because we don't have the capacity for that right now. So, so I could... I suppose as you're, as you're sharing that, I'm just... In in my head, I'm just imagining, you know, like I'm living in this this town here, Kingston, and the whole there's a fire go there's a fire and the alarm the fire engines are running around, alarm bells are going, it's all going crazy, fire is spreading, and the alarm it's just getting louder and louder. But we're not sort of addressing the fire. We're just kind yeah. of looking around where you know, just kind of not really going to where where it's all starting. What what's the kind of the root cause, I suppose absolutely what i was doing is the there were there was fire blazing all around and my firefighters were pointing the hose at the fire alarm yeah. not at the fire 
I was spending all of my time trying to fix the symptoms, but the symptoms were just the warning. Absolutely. That was it. In the same way that when you break your ankle, the pain is just a warning signal. The problem is not the pain itself. The pain is trying to get you to stop causing further damage. It's the fire alarm. And that's the same with my symptoms. My symptoms were all just different variations of fire alarm, but that's all they were. And the more I tried to fix them, the less I was dealing with the root cause. And that's, you know, the body's just amazing. You know, like you said, it's not making mistakes. There's reasons for it. And these reasons aren't, oh, you've got a magnesium deficiency or you've got a sodium, you know, like your pots. Because, I mean, there are certain things as a a practitioner we use for pots. But whilst we work on the underlying issues, which pots is now really well known to be a kind of a mind body connection thing. And we look at it as a HPA axis issue. But, you know, I, I think one of the messages is that your body is not going wrong right? Mm. It's actually sending you, it's communicating those, all those chronic illnesses, those symptoms are communicating to you saying, please, can you, can you check in on me? Can you just listen to me in here? Um, you know, this, uh, this is all very dangerous for me at the moment. I can't, it's overwhelm. And I think that's kind of the society we're kind of a, sort of living in at the moment, you know, so much overwhelm. Absolutely. Our our brains are not equipped to deal with the sensory information that we are being bombarded to in this day and age, whether it's social media or just going out and having all the car noises. I mean, just the sheer amount of sensory overwhelm that we're constantly being bombarded with is can for many brains when we're not actually looking after ourselves, particularly when we're not actually taking the time to reduce our, our own internal emotional barrel it can just result in symptoms happening a lot sooner than they otherwise might have done back in our evolutionary past. So it's about being compassionate with the fact that our brains are doing the best that they can. They're doing the best that they can. They're not making a mistake. But similarly, we're not really helping out. We're just often fueling the fire. So there's, this is how we get stuck in the, chronic, uh, in the chronic symptom spiral, is these symptoms are inherently designed to be short term. They are not designed to be long term in the same way that when you burn your hand on the stove, the pain doesn't switch on and then last forever. Yes. No, it goes away as the injury heals, as the need for it goes down. Mm -hmm. The problem is when we get these types of chronic symptoms is the predator, if you will, never leaves because we get the diagnosis. Then we get the overwhelm with the symptoms. We don't understand what's going on. So we get more overwhelmed and more scared. And so the brain needs to activate the danger alarm signal again even more so we then just get stuck in this cycle of overwhelm which is why non-structural or neuroplastic symptoms can often be more severe than structural pain so can i you just said non-structural neuroplastic now i'm just very mindful i'm familiar with neuroplastic but can you just share what suddenly you've said non-structural then suddenly use this word called neuroplastic can you just explain neuroplastic please yes so non-structural symptoms are the idea that these uh, that these symptoms are arising in the absence of any structural damage and yeah. neuroplastic is another way of saying this it's about saying that these symptoms are derived because of learnt neural pathways in the brain the brain has learned how to become better and better and better at producing these symptoms okay. which corresponds to what we were talking about with the chronic symptom spiral the more your brain has to produce these symptoms it's a bit like learning how to play a sport or learning how to play a musical instrument the Mm. more you practice the more naturally the more natural it becomes and that's the same with this where the brain can just learn over time the more it has to do it the more it practices having to switch on these types of symptoms the better at it it becomes in other words the fire alarm becomes more sensitive so the fire alarm then begins to switch on when you've just put the toast in the toaster rather than when there's actually a fire going on yeah so it's just like also so like a default now it's just that that's the way the body's now or the brain is just functioning because that's the the natural default rather than saying okay this is you know it is dangerous but it's like the body's now got used to it and there's nobody there to you know to actually address to put out the fire it's just now okay so it's just constantly trying to communicate constantly constantly well I'd love to know Gigi what happened next I'm now itching to know what happened next 
You found yeah. out there's this neuroplastic pain. There's a mind-body connection that it's not structural, but the pain is real. It's produced by your brain for a reason. Your body doesn't, it's not making it up. It's not gone faulty. What happened then? So that was the start of my recovery because the the, the major principle with all of this is there is nothing wrong with your brain. There's nothing wrong with your brain, which is a huge perspective shift. And really the notion, the expectation, the belief that there is something wrong with your with your brain or something wrong with your body, that's what continues the chronic symptoms. Because your those brain... thoughts, those thoughts that there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with my brain, I'm never going to get well. But, you know, I suppose that how do you work with that? I mean, if you've been ill for so long, because, you know, I, you know, interstitial cystitis is is horrendous. I've, you know, I'm very familiar with some of the work, like Dr. John Sonner's work, Shubin's work, because I used to suffer from migraines. Um, so I've had a similar kind of story, but nothing compared to, you know, what you're sharing. But I've tried everything. You know, I tried uh, functional medicine. I tried homeopathy, everything. My my migraines were linked very much to the first day of my cycle. It was always the first day of my cycle. I used to make sure that the first day of my cycle, I didn't have clinic. I didn't have anything planned. You know, I was ready for bed, day off. It was in bed and I get, you know, get through the migraine. But I tried so many things. And I did not believe that it was a mind-body thing because of thinking, no way, it's the first day of my cycle. It's liver, it's hormones, you know, and you just, and again, that I suppose it doesn't help when you've got that scientific way of thinking because you have all these theories and you have all this understanding. And that's the other thing, like what your journey, you know, just listening to you, it may, it's common sense to me. Of course, you're going to think, let's go down this route. Of course, interstitial cystitis, there must be some papers to show this in infection because it, it's the way we're, we're wired. You know, where you, you've mentioned the word hypothesis several times. This is, you know, this is a scientist speaking. You know, this is somebody who's a researcher. And I connect with that because we we sort of become so far removed from our our here, our heart, our body, you know, our feelings that we're always looking for something on the outside. And I kept thinking that as well. And then, you know, John Sarno's work and he talks about what you just mentioned, which made me laugh about him. Um, you know, because you still kept going, you still managed to do your degree and then your master's with all that going on. And that, you know, he described, is it the, the goodest, right? In his book, he talks about the goodest. Yes, so, so exactly. All the boxes, right? Absolutely. I just would not stop. I would not stop until my body forced me to stop. I had become so good at pushing through. And in a way, my diagnosis had inadvertently help with that because I was told this is something that you're going to have to have forever so my default was I'm going to have to learn how to live with this and I have to have a life so I have to push through these symptoms all the time all the time all the time and eventually because they weren't actually because of my Ehlers-Danlos because they were just instead to do with extreme emotional overwhelm there came a point where my brain said no we're going to create a symptom experience that you cannot push through. And for me, that just happened to be the interstitial cystitis. That was my brain's emergency break. That was a, you're not going to continue because we will no longer allow you to continue. Yeah. But me pushing through because I had been told that this was my life had just almost forced me to become less in tune with my body. I wasn't respecting these warning signals that I was being given because I was just, I just thought that I'd pulled the short straw and that my brain and body was just malfunctioning because of a genetic condition, sure. which ultimately sure. was not the case. Yeah. And that's sort of common sense, right? It makes sense. A plus B equals C. Right. Exactly. So, then, yeah. So do share what, you know, what was, where do you go from, you know, okay, somebody's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, okay, I've got migraines, I've got interstitial cystitis, or I've got this chronic pain, and the even the MRI scans don't tie up with the symptoms. Where, where do they go from this? What happened next for you? So it was really just about being persistent and patient. Recovery from these symptoms is not a smooth line, but it is all driven by a shift in perspective. The more we change the way that we view our symptoms, the less power they hold over us, the more belief that we have that we be can become 100% symptom free. That's how we reduce the overwhelm on the brain. Yeah. 
because for me the significant overwhelm in my life was being caused by the fact that my symptoms were so horrendous so being told that my symptoms weren't going to last forever and that my symptoms were short term exactly I felt like this huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders the way I interacted with my symptoms was completely different Mm. and because of that the way that my brain the information that my brain was receiving about whether or not I was in a safe environment or not was Mm. changing so because these symptoms are not meant to be long term your brain is constantly monitoring its level of overwhelm and as the level a level of overwhelm goes down persistently over time the Mm. need for these danger alarm signals reduces over Mm. time and so you start seeing slight fluctuations in your symptoms and for me it started off with you know around a 15 out of 10 pain going to around a 13 out of 10 pain this was not these were not enormous fluctuations but what they demonstrated was that my my brain was receptive to the information that i was experiencing or the way that i was feeling the calmer i felt now this was not again a finely tuned system where i would have one moment of feeling incredibly calm and then my pain would go down for me my brain was not as finely tuned as that but it was just as i was persistently feeling calmer and less reactive towards my symptoms I noticed these fluctuations that had not happened previously. And then that in and of itself then made me feel more comfortable or made me feel more confident in the situation. And so again, it was just this gradual process over time. But as I said before, recovery is really not linear. This is a habit that your brain has learned over time. And it's exhausting having a new way of thinking about things. So in and, in and of that process, I would have these moments where I would slip back into old ways of thinking and I would have terrible panic attacks and I think I'm never going to get better. And similarly, I would have random flares up of pain out of nowhere that were absolutely debilitating. And again, that would not my confidence. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I, part of my job when I work with clients is to have them know that that is completely normal to try and help reduce that overwhelm when that actually happens. So the moral of all of this is it it really takes persistence and patience. It's mm-hmm. about learning how to look after our emotional needs better, being able mm-hmm. to have emotional outlets for mm-hmm. our overwhelm, particularly overwhelm that's being caused by our external life mm-hmm. and being able, that's why there are techniques like journaling and there's other techniques like somatic tracking, which somatic tracking basically just means learning how to react to the symptoms in your body in a less reactive way. So just learning how to experience the symptoms and let it go. So this is why in order to be able to do that, you really have to have the knowledge that you're okay. Otherwise, it's very difficult to do that particular technique. And, you know, it's and it's really hard, isn't it, to actually explain it? Because, I mean, you you said something about the, you know, there's there's I suppose there's less danger because there's now more safety. You know, and what does you know, what is what is that safety, Gigi? Because if you if there's less danger, then it's like you've got now more space to I know it sounds a bit out there but more space to just be to to kind of let you know let the brakes you know like let the car do its thing you know like the brakes and the pedals and the gas rather than have the gas down all the time or put the brakes down you know it's it's like just finding that that equilibrium but that equilibrium still needs it, it's it takes time is that right is it you know it, it just takes time our bodies have been in chronic fight or flight for in in some cases decades and it's not because the it's not because the nervous system is stuck there yeah. it's because all of the information that we've been receiving suggests that we should be in fight or flight mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it takes a little bit of time to view things from a different perspective and to allow our nervous system and our brains to react accordingly mm-hmm. so it sounds it's a very difficult process to describe because everybody's journey is completely different mm-hmm. everybody will have their fear their specific fears or their specific doubts about their specific symptom experience and my job is to help work through that in an appropriate way to help reduce the overwhelm Mm -hmm. because reducing this is an overwhelm alarm signal and if we just slowly chip away at the overwhelm the alarm signal goes down Mm -hmm. that's the basic principle behind all of this now in in everybody's life there are going to be different sources of overwhelm so we can't say we can't give a hard and fast rule about these are the techniques that we do help reduce overwhelm because they're entirely personal to that person's situation Mm -hmm. so instead it's it's much more of 
a, a process either of self-discovery of trying to find out those bits you know within your own life that are causing that overwhelm or having somebody to help you in that journey if it all feels too overwhelming to do it by yourself yeah. but that's really what the process of recovery is is learning to trust your intuition more learning to enforce boundaries that you feel need to be enforced and just yeah. taking care of yourself in that way showing yourself some love and compassion and and you know it, i suppose how do you how does somebody who's been in so much pain and maybe in an environment that isn't really suitable, they may be in a job or in a relationship, in you know, living in an environment that's not really, not in inverted commas, safe. How do they find that self-compassion and that safety? What I know it's very different for everybody, but is there, you know, how, what do you feel for you was, I mean, right now, for example, you know, I'm sure the average person would say, so Gigi, are you completely cured? You know, it's, you know, because that's what we expect, don't we, in Western medicine or anybody or even clients that I see. It's a, a, I'm coming with a condition. B, I then my goal is to be completely cured. Now, I really believe, you know, believe and I think so many of us do that it's a pro, you know, it's it's why do we fall ill in the first place? You know, it, it there's some there's a journey here now without becoming spiritual or philosophical. It, some a lot of us are kind of have become kind of disconnected with, with who am I? What do I want in life? What makes me sing? What makes me dance? What makes me happy? You know, some of us are sort of get up, go to work, come home, cook the dinner, put the kids to bed. You know, it's a bit. And then suddenly migraines, whatever, you, you know, all these sort of chronic conditions. But what where does a person start? If somebody's listening to this podcast, people are listening to this podcast, where can they start? Do you recommend any material they could read? Do you recommend any you know, do you, I don't know whether it's breath work, meditation, yoga, I don't know, I'm just throwing it at you, I know what works for me, but that's for me, and I know there's no, but what kind of, I don't know, modalities could they do at home that are free, that, you know, doesn't involve costly exercises? Yeah, so I think in terms of just understanding the information, information is power when it comes to this, yeah. understanding that you're really okay is so important, so the two books that I always recommend are mm -hmm. Howard Schubiner's How to Unlearn Your Pain yeah. and Alan Gordon's The Way Out. Okay. I think that those so are two books. Unlearn Your Pain and Alan Gordon's The Way Out. So, do you know, it's exactly. interesting because um, the, the Way Out book is on a compulsory book reading list in year one. So I didn't even introduce myself at the beginning, but I'm, you know, Kushmark, who's the founder and principal of the new school of nutritional medicine and we we actually run a school where Gigi, Gigi kindly came in on Sunday and shared a testimony and then did a whole um I think an hour an hour and a half or something of question and answer time and it was I mean I didn't manage to sit in I was teaching at the same time but I think you know for us now in the future as 21st century practitioners we need to be aware of this we need to also be aware this is science. This isn't just woo-woo. This isn't just like, you know, sort of out of the ether. It is proven and neuroplastic pain does exist. And I think, and so Howard Schubiner's, um, not Howard Schubiner's book, but um, Alan Gordon's book is a great read. I, and, and, and I love it. I love it. I'm not saying, but I do find it still the book, not, you know, the book itself seems a bit prescriptive to me because I've had a few clients who've read the book and then they go into that, right, going to do this, then I'm going to do this. And then I go, and it's like, it becomes another to do, like another thing to tick off the list. And it's like, it's not about a list. It's not. A, can you explain that a bit? Do you have you experienced that? Do you see that? Because uh, of, of course, everybody's instinct, because the reason why they're seeing me or they're seeing you is because they want their symptoms to go away. <laughs> so every discussion, every book that it's about, that's about pain or every discussion that they have is with the intention of fixing their pain. But the biggest gift that we can give is to try and instead of fix the fire alarm, which isn't broken, it's about trying to steer them to reducing the overwhelm. So I always say the metric of success when it comes to a technique or you know prescriptive journaling or somatic tracking or any of these or or mindfulness or meditation the definition of success or the metric real time it shifts your symptom experience it's not that at all it's how it makes you feel do you feel like it made you less overwhelmed did you feel calmer after having done it that's how we know if it's tackling the fire or the fire alarm 
you know, we're trying to focus on the fire. So with all of these different techniques, you know, if somebody says to you, I, I did this technique and this is what worked for me, it, we then can feel like a failure if we don't notice a big difference straight away for us. And then that can de delay our own recovery because what's it doing? It's adding overwhelm. So the metric of success, obviously, in the long term is for your symptoms to go away. But in order to allow that to happen, we have to focus on reducing the overwhelm. So that's there are so many different techniques that we can give a go, you know, whether it's yoga, mindfulness, meditation, um, somatic tracking, journaling, all mm. of these different things. I'm just throwing out a multitude of different self care techniques but that's it they're self-care techniques they're not techniques to do with fixing symptoms they're yeah. techniques that every human should be doing to take care of themselves if it makes them feel better sport that's another one that can make people feel fantastic when you know when it can reduce that overwhelm so yeah. this is this is just about finding what your passions are not because somebody is telling you that it's going to fix your symptoms it's about doing it because you actually enjoy how it makes you feel from an emotional perspective so you're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it with a focus on reducing the pain. Right, exactly. And it's the most important thing that I could possibly share with anybody is that's where most people get stuck. And that's why most people, even when they know about mind-body work, and even if they believe in mind-body work 100%, they can still not see any changes because they're trying to fix the fire alarm. Yeah. And it's the easiest thing for us all to do. But in the same way as if you were to break your ankle, say you broke your ankle and you went into the hospital and you had all the scans done and the doctor came out and he said, okay, you've got a fracture, you've broken your ankle, but we're not going to fix the broken ankle. We're mm. going to train your brain out of producing the pain. Mm. You would think that he was crazy. Yeah. Think that he was absolutely bizarre say no I'd prefer if you could fix my broken ankle please I love that I love that that is just yes yeah and so that's what we're trying to do here we are not trying to fix the warning signal we are trying to fix the overwhelm now there are many situations people might be listening to this and say well I have a terrible relationship with my partner or I have an unbelievably stressful job mm. can I ever get well when I'm in these stressful situations mm. and the answer is yes if we have effective enough tools at helping you to cope with those situations in real time. Yeah. So that's, it's not all about moving to a mountain in Bhutan and, you know, living the simple life in terms of just having no sensory overload and living in a wonderful, beautiful place. It's not about that. It's about how can we cope with the environment that we're in? Yeah. Obviously yeah. we can make tweaks in our yes. external input to help reduce that overwhelm that's phenomenal but sometimes we can't yes. for whatever reason and if that's the situation then it's about trying to find ways to cope with that situation better yeah I think also Gigi you know it took it, it took me I mean gosh I had um migraines from puberty and um and I remember um my mum saying well you know it, it's 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 in the family you know it's karma it's because we you know believe believe in karma well believed in karma um, and she said, this is something that you'll have to live with for the rest of your life. And I remember and I felt so disheartened. And my mum used to suffer from migraines as well. And I, rem I remember her walking around with the band around her head. She tied up really tight because it was really um, and she was one of those get pushed through it, pushed through it. And it's really hard to actually believe that, you know, this is actually a mind, but because you uh, you make it like, OK, that was puberty. It's hormones. You know, it, no matter how much I think it's also like what you said very similar you know I we haven't mentioned I mean I love how I got into this kind of work was Dr Sano because I read his book years ago and that was mainly actually because of my husband who had um, chronic back pain which again was you know absolutely helped by the work of Dr John Sano before Alan Gordon was known and we didn't know about Schubiner um, and he talks about I really love you know he talks about the goodies in the book which you seem to tick the boxes I tick the boxes and it's really hard to actually believe that and until you get to the point that you say, okay, this is not structural, it's neuroplastic, that you, it, it's it's quite hard to make that shift because you have, you're where you are now because you've, you've lived, you've lived this experience. You've gone from one extreme and now you're at this place where you are now um, supporting others, as you called yourself, a support, a professional support system. 
um, in how to work through where they're at. So you're not giving them the solution. It's because at the end of the day, it's the, the client that's working. The solution is in them. And you're just kind of being that, you know, sort of that side, their sidekick in a way, I suppose. But it's it's amazing. I mean, what you've shared is just, it, it really is mind blowing. And I just hope that people have, you know, listened to this podcast will, you know, sort of, sort of think because it's a paradigm shift as well isn't it it's kind of takes a big step to kind of see it from okay this is not just my body going wrong but actually that I can be healed from this and knowing what is structural pain and what is non-structural pain so making sure that you know they know the difference so my question is where where do they find you and do you are you taking on clients at the moment I know you're very busy but um Yes, so I am the the website. My website is um www.thepainpractitioner.com and people can email me directly at info at thepainpractitioner.com. And if you want a little help along the way, I'm always here. I know how difficult it can be trying to traverse this alone because I I had my mum and we she really was my professional support system. <laughs> Um, but it, it can be a really difficult road to navigate trying to figure this out trying to work out if this is what's going on with you and all of these different things um, and I very much utilize Howard Schubiner's approach I was trained by Howard Schubiner um, yep. and so his his work is how I work with my clients um, but yeah that's way well, I really appreciate, I mean, I'm really excited because I just think, you know, you just doing that, you know, we integrate the coaching aspect at the New School of Nutritional Medicine as well. And the coaching side is really, it's not, you know, again, I think sometimes coaching is also misunderstood. You know, I think the old school was, it's all rah, 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 you've got a goal, let's achieve your goal. And, you know, as as um uh, David calls it, he's one of, the, one of the coaching team at the school, he calls it the preferred scenario because otherwise, you know, it, it's just like, it, and it's about that space and the person in the belief is that the person had the individual has the answer in them but believing that you know I laugh about it because Montessori Dr Montessori you know all those years ago and she set up the Montessori schools she always believed that children knew that they know what to do they know the you know they knew how to they should give them all these beautiful glasses and teapots and they knew how to pour it without spilling it she said if they're allowed to do it they know how to do it and I think sometimes that's kind of not beaten out of us, but we sort of that self-belief and the belief in the body to heal and and be able to do that, sort of we lose that somewhere along the way and we become so focused on um, you know, other things, other external things. So um, but I really, really appreciate your time and really have enjoyed um, you know, hearing your story and your and the fact that you are where you are now right. and you're helping other, you know, supporting others with how you how you had got that support. So um thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I've loved speaking with you as always. Thank you. <laughs>